Section 2 of the National Geographic Magazine, Volume 7, October 1896. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carol Cotter. The Economic Aspects of Soil Erosion by Dr. N. S. Shaler professor of geology in Harvard University and dean of the Lawrence Scientific School. The old view that the earth was firm set and that on it we could build for I has gone the way of many ancient opinions. In every region which geologists have investigated, they have had occasion to note many and profound alterations in the form of the surface which have taken place since man has occupied the earth. They have come to recognize the fact that man himself is, through his arts, particularly those of agriculture, one of the great agents of change, and that through these interferences with the course of nature, the operation of many forces has been greatly increased in energy. This understanding has extended beyond the class of special students of earth phenomena. We find, indeed, the ablest essay as to the influence of man on terrestrial conditions written by one who approached the subject from the standpoint of the historian. So far as I am aware, no geologist has yet undertaken to consider this matter with reference at once to its scientific aspect and its economic importance. I therefore propose to take up the processes of land erosion from the point of view of the geologist and to trace the influence of their actions upon the formation and preservation of the soil. In the treatment of this subject, we shall be led into that important but as yet unrecognized branch of national economy, which relates to the preservation of the tillage values of various countries. In dealing with any group of geological features, it is well to consider at the outset the origin and mode of application of the energy that has served to give them shape. We may therefore begin our task with a brief account of the forces which operate in the process of erosion. So far as regards their origin, these forces are essentially simple. They all substantially depend upon solar radiation. Only secondarily, and in a very unimportant way, are they due to subterranean action or to the attractions of the sun and moon, which give rise to the tides. The average amount of heat received by a square foot of the Earth's surface each year is sufficient to lift a pound of matter to a height of many thousand feet. If all this heat could be converted into dynamic energy and applied to rending rock, such as granite, into sand-like material, the effect would be to break up the rocks in a very rapid manner. It is likely that the process of destruction would go on at the rate of several feet a year, Fortunately for the Earth, this work is so organized that only a small part of this energy actually enters into the processes which bring about wearing. By far the greater portion is fended off in ways that we shall have to note and sent upon other errands. We shall now consider the ways in which excessive erosion is avoided and thus be led to see how the remnant of the forces is applied to such work. When the tide of solar energy strikes our sphere, somewhere near one half thereof is more or less directly intercepted by the atmosphere, and does not penetrate to the lower realm of rock and water, but goes away again into space. Of that which comes to what is commonly called the surface of the earth, again the greater part quickly flies away by radiation into the realms of space.
If the air permitted the egress of heat as easily as it does the ingress of that form of motion, the earth would never acquire the relatively high and tolerably stable temperatures which make it fit for organic life, or for that work of erosion which, as we shall see hereafter, is intimately associated with the existence of all processes of development. If we trust the reckonings of certain eminent physicists, this sphere would under such conditions remain at the temperature of space, or some hundred degrees below zero on the Fahrenheit scale. Owing, however, to a nice adjustment of terrestrial conditions, the air, principally through the moisture it contains, hinders the outward motion of heat a little more than it does its incoming. It is in a small way a trap to retain the temperature Thus, the surface is in general maintained in a somewhat warmer state than that of the air. In this interesting condition of affairs, we are now to find the origin of those processes which affect erosion. Owing to the warmth which the sunshine gives alike to land and sea, the atmosphere next those surfaces becomes considerably heated and thereby expanded. This process leads to the formation of an ascending air current which may be of a local nature, appearing as in dust whirls, water spouts, cyclones or hurricanes, all exhibiting a spinning upward movement of a temporary and migratory character. Or the ascending movement may take the shape of the great tropical belt of ascending air, that vast permanent slit-like chimney which extends almost completely around the earth in the tropical zone. Whether these ascending currents have the character of the spinning storms or the great permanent tropical upcast, their effect is to put the air in motion. Through them, volumes of the atmosphere are constantly set into currents of swaying movement, the result being that winds, variable so far as created by the cyclone groups or tolerably constant when due to the tropical upcast, are brought about. These winds, of sufficient energy to have distinct geological value in a direct or indirect way, appear to be constantly at work at all times and at all parts of the Earth's surface, except during the long winter nights in the realm about either pole. The simplest geological work of the winds is that which is brought about by their friction upon the water surfaces of the Earth. For our purpose, the important result of this friction is the formation of waves or undulations of water in which are stored the energy which the winds expended in their making. In their greater form, these waves may have a length of several miles, a width of a thousand feet or more, and a height from trough to crest of fifty or sixty feet. Such a wave may store more energy than can be applied at one time by the guns of the greatest warship. Gathering their power from a long-continued storm wind, these waves can roll on for hundreds of miles after they have passed beyond the field of air which set them in motion. So long as waves move over a deep sea, they have no geological value. The greater part of them die out, generally converting the energy which they represent into heat that is given to the water or to the air. When, however, the surges enter a part of the sea which is relatively shallow, they begin to do erosive work. In a depth of 1,000 feet, the higher waves drag a little on the bottom, brushing the sea floor lightly in a manner that may move the finer sediment. At a depth of 250 feet, the movement is strong enough to sweep small coarse sand towards the shore, and with each further step in the shallowing, the vigour of the scouring action increases, until as the wave rises in the wall of the surf, the rush has something like the fury of an avalanche, 
whirling before it everything that is not closely knit to the surface over which it is moving. As the wave comes into shallow water, and in proportion to the dragging action which it exercises on the bottom, the surge becomes to a certain extent worn out. It shrinks in size, so that rarely, if ever, do the great waves of the wide ocean attain the continental shores. The decay of the wave is due to the application of its energy, due to the erosion work which it has done on the sea floor. The loss is shown not so much by the decrease in height of the surge as in the shortening of its width and the slowing of its motion. A good share of its height is preserved in a peculiar manner. As the undulation comes over the shallowing floor of the sea, the hindrance to its ongoing is proportionate to the diminution of the depth. The result is that the front of the wave, being in the least depth, is held back to a greater degree than the rear, which is in deeper water. The two sides of the wave are thus crowded together, so that the crest of the arch is relatively uplifted. For all this, however, the wave, when it overturns, that is, when the top or part least held back by the friction on the bottom shoots over the base and falls in the recurrent cataract of the surf, probably never exceeds 20 feet in height and the energy left in the surging water may be reckoned at less than one-tenth of that which is held by the greater waves of the open sea. When the wave delivers its finishing stroke in the surf line and its splash front, the modes in which its energy is applied suddenly become changed. The falling mass of water strikes a powerful blow, which, coming upon firm-set rock or sand, has but little effect. But when, as is often the case, the beach is covered with loose stones, these fragments are driven about in a violent manner and strike heavy blows. When the wave overturns, the mass of water sweeps up the slope of the strand, urging before it all the rock fragments which it can drive onward. If the upper edge of the beach is bordered by cliffs, as is generally the case along rock-bound shores, the swash and secondary waves which gather inside the tumble of the surf send the boulders with each stroke to batter the base of the bluff. Although the waves have in all cases lost a large part of their energy before they are able to do this work of battering the shore cliffs, they are still, when armed with rock fragments, competent to accomplish a great deal of erosion. Whenever the cliff is composed of ordinary hard rock, the battering at its base cuts a recess, causing the cliff to overhang. In time, the weight of the mass, which is thus unsupported, brings it in ruins to the beach where the fragments are ground into sand or mud by the action of the waves and removed to the deep sea or the distant reaches of the shore. Whenever the level of sea and land remains for a considerable time constant and the shore is not protected by sand beaches, the sea cuts a distinct bench into the rocks. Even a few centuries will suffice to make this bench a noticeable feature in the sea front. A single geological period may serve to bring it to a width of one or many miles. In general, however, the frequent, we may say the incessant, changes of level place the shoreline now here and now there on the land surface, and so distribute the effect of the marine benching over an area the width of which varies with the steepness of the slope from the interior to the ocean. It is not as yet possible for us to estimate the value of this erosive work of the waves. Geologists and geographers have of late been disposed to give it less importance than they did in the earlier stages of the science. In my opinion, they have seriously underestimated its importance. 
That it is of much value is clearly shown by the work that has been accomplished along the shores in very recent times. To limit ourselves to coasts that are at the moment steadfast and to areas within the limits of the United States, we may instance the southern borders of the islands of eastern Massachusetts, which since the settlement of the country have been encroached upon by the sea at a very rapid rate. On the south side of Nantucket, the waste in certain years has amounted to five or six feet. On the corresponding shore of Martha's Vineyard, the recession during the last 40 years, as has been shown by the surveys of Assistant H. L. Whiting of the U.S. Coast Survey, has been at an average rate of three feet per annum. It is probable that the gain of the sea on this part of the coast during the three centuries since the land was first seen by Europeans has amounted to nearly a mile. On ordinary rock shores, the rate of wearing is relatively slow and exceedingly variable in amount, but where the waves have a fair chance to assault the land, it is always considerable. Allowing the minimum results obtained in numerous observations, we must reckon the gain of the sea at a mean of two feet per century, computing at 10,000 years the time that has elapsed since the ice sheet of the last glacial period passed from these shores, the total amount of this coast erosion should average 200 feet. During a period of 100,000 years, a very brief age in the history of the world, the sea should have worked its way in more than a third of a mile. Since the beginning of tertiary time, which cannot well be reckoned at less than two to three millions of years ago, the recession of the shore due to the action of the waves may safely be estimated at several miles. Taking all the coastline on the eastern border of the United States into consideration, we see that the sand beaches, owing to their singular endurance of wave action, a feature I have discussed elsewhere, have an important restraining effect on the process of marine erosion. Making allowance for this protective work, it remains clear that the effect of ocean waves is to wear back the shorelines into the land, and this at a rate which in geological sense may be termed rapid. As geologists find but few shores bordered by distinct benches cut in the hard rocks, they have generally underestimated the value of wave work. But in forming their opinion, they have neglected the important fact that the continents are continually changing their positions in relation to the sea level. Every step in the advancement of our knowledge of the problem shows that the shorelands are ceaselessly and at times suddenly moving upward or downward. Even those coasts which now appear to be steadfast have in very recent times changed their positions by sinking or rising. The result of these perpetual swayings of the coastlines is to distribute the benching action of the waves over a wide zone, extending along the most of the great lands from a level much below that of the present shores to a position far higher than that which they now occupy. In some instances, where the sea has chanced to remain for a long time in contact with the land on one horizontal plane, we note the existence of broad shelves of rock extending outward from the sea cliffs, sometimes to the distance of a mile or more. Thus, on the coast of Yorkshire, from Whitby southward, a sea-cut bench, with its surface just above low tide, stretches seaward from the foot of the towering cliffs for an average distance of more than a mile attesting in the plainest possible manner the cutting power of the sea. In general, we may say of the eastern coasts of North America that indications of marine work are visible to a height of several hundred feet above the plain of the ocean. 
and that there is a good reason to believe that such cutting work has been done on much of the slope which now lies below the sea. When, by the uplifting of the land, ancient sea bases are carried above the limits of wave action, they are quickly worn away by the processes of erosion which are proper to the land. When such benches are lowered beneath the ocean, they are soon covered by sediments, and thus brought into positions where even subsequent uprising of the continent would not cause them to be revealed. Along the eastern face of North America, from South Carolina to Newfoundland, there exists a series of old mountain ranges, to which we may give the name of the Lost Appalachians, that have been worn down to their roots by some process of erosion. West of these deeply wasted mountains in the section from Pennsylvania southward, we have the yet older ranges of the Blue Ridge or Central Appalachians, which on their eastern face have been worn away, though their western parts retain a considerable relief. Still further to the west, behind the wall of the Middle Appalachians, lie the West Appalachians, or Cumberland and Allegheny ranges. These last-named elevations retain their original reliefs much more perfectly than the seaward mountains. They are relatively little degraded. They are recognized as mountains in common speech, while those along the Atlantic coast, though of younger age, have lost to the common eye their mountainous character and are known to the geologist only by the altitudes of their rocks. Considering from the point of view of economic interests, the erosion or land destruction which is accomplished by the sea, we note that even in historic times it has wrought changes of considerable moment to mankind. Wherever the shores are bordered by very hard rocks or walled in by sand beaches, the processes by which the land is stripped away and its debris carried into the sea are slow. The destruction is distributed over a long period, and there is no distinct effect in the interest of men. Where, however, the coasts are of soft rocks, the waste is often so rapid that it may dispossess communities of their inheritance. Thus, at the rate of marine invasion which is now going on on the southern shores of Nantucket, that island is likely to disappear in the course of two or three thousand years, being in the end reduced to the condition of a shoal such as we now find in the shallows which stretch far to the southeastward of that island shallows which seem to mark the position of ancient lands that have been swept away by the waves. George's shoals and other shoals extending along the coast to the northern end of the banks of Newfoundland can best be explained by supposing that they mark the sites of islands that have been planed down by the sea. The recorded history of this country is too brief to afford any very important instances of marine erosion. In the old world, however, these abound. Perhaps the most noteworthy is that of the politically important island of Heligoland in the North Sea, which is wasting with such rapidity that it is not likely to endure for more than two or three centuries to come. The eastern and southern coasts of England, bordered as they are by soft stratified rocks, are also the seat of a rapid though locally variable marine erosion which within the limits of recorded history has sensibly diminished the areas of many parishes. Accurate data for determining the number of square miles thus lost to the service of man are lacking, but from a careful inspection of the English coast I am of the opinion that during the Christian era the total loss of area in that portion of the most important island in the world has probably not been less than 100 square miles.
as the land thus destroyed was of average fertility, the loss of food-giving capacity has been sufficient to diminish in a noteworthy way the population-sustaining value of the country. Against the invasions of the sea, whether they arise from the direct assaults of the waves and the currents which the winds produce or by a combination of subsidence and wave action, there seems to be no effective means of protection. The skill of the engineer, applied at great cost, may arrest or delay the loss at points where the safety of harbours or towns is involved, but there is no reason to suppose that it will ever be found economical to protect the sea margin from wasting where the defences are merely to save agricultural land. Our own coasts, particularly that of New Jersey, are strewn with wrecks which mark the failure of ill-directed efforts to ward off the persistent assaults of the waves. At certain points in eastern Massachusetts, I have found it worthwhile to advise the owners of houses on the seashore, where their ground was endangered by the inwashing of the shoreline, to heap the seafront with large boulders drawn from the neighbouring fields. In somewhat protected positions, the waves breaking on this artificial beach are fended from the cliffs. Thus, by giving the sea dogs a bone, they could for a time be kept from their ravages. Where the waves do not attain the coastline with a height of more than five feet, this inexpensive barrier appears to be very serviceable, but on the more open shores any boulder that could without great cost be placed on the shore would be tossed about and rapidly worn to small bits. For the maintenance of the precious land, that seat of all the higher life of the world, against the assaults of the waves or the more rapid destruction which is brought about by the sinking of the shorelands, we must look to those natural forces which are ever, though not uniformly, at work, uplifting the continental arches above the plain of the seas. At present we seem to be in a period where the great lands recently in a state of very general depression as regards the sea level have come to a prevailingly steadfast state. The next step may be toward a general gain of the continental areas on the fields of the oceans. We now turn from the work of erosion, which goes upon the shores, and which, as we have seen, is due to the action of solar heat working through the movements that it enforces on the atmosphere, to another effect of the sun's energy, that due to the evaporation and precipitation of water. We have noted the fact that the radiation of heat is hindered by the atmosphere, one consequence of which is the warming of the air next to the Earth's surface an effect which is noticeable in a diminishing rate for a great height above the surface. To this action is also attributable the establishment of conditions which bring about the system of the rains. It fortunately happens that the adjustment of temperatures next to the Earth's surface makes it possible for the process of evaporation to lift a large amount of water into the air. The quantity thus borne upward is not as yet definitely ascertained but it probably amounts to not far from an average of five feet per annum over the surface of the seas. The greater part of this water, after ascending to a height of perhaps a mile or more on an average, is condensed and falls back to the ocean as rain or snow. In making this circuit, work is done, but it is of no geological value. Following the dynamic history of a pound of water in its up and down journey, we see that it takes 5,000 foot-pounds of energy expressed in heat to lift it for the mile or so of its ascent, and that this energy is reconverted into heat by the friction which the water encounters in falling or by the blow which it strikes when it attains the surface. 
Owing to the conditions, the energy of position which the water had when at its highest point, an amount sufficient to lift one ton to the height of two and one half feet, has, when it falls back to the sea, done no work of lasting importance. It is, as we shall see, quite otherwise, when in the downward movement the water falls upon a land surface. The winds, those movements of the atmosphere which create the waves and thus bring about marine erosion, transport the watery vapour from its main source, the seas, so that a share of it, perhaps near one half of all that is formed, is brought over the surface of the lands. There, owing to the fact that the air is more or less uplifted, the precipitation of the water vapour is more favoured, and the proportion of rainfall is usually greater than it is upon the surface of the ocean. Falling upon the land, the condensed moisture comes down in one or another of three forms, as dew, as rain, or as snow. The dew, though it has much geological importance because of its relation to plant life, has only indirect value in the problem of land erosion. It serves to diminish this wearing by favouring in the dry seasons the development of a mat of vegetation, which in the period of rains protects the earth in a very effective way from the temporary streams which gather during heavy showers. The importance of this form of precipitation is great, but it is so limited that we may, with this brief statement, dismiss it. The normal form of falling water is rain, in this mode of precipitation we usually find the fluid descending from a considerable height in the form of drops of varied bulk, averaging perhaps rather more than one twentieth of an inch in diameter. They are generally large enough to acquire a considerable velocity on their way to the earth, though their momentum is much diminished by the friction they encounter in passing through the air. Striking the earth, they apply to it what energy they have by virtue of their velocity. If we observe what takes place on recently tilled earth, we readily note certain important consequences arising from this immediate assault of the rain. As soon as the soil is moistened, each stroke acts to break up the clods, bringing the material into the condition of mud, in which it is readily borne away by the rills, which, if the shower be heavy, quickly form in such numbers as to interlace the surface. In a few moments these little streams, at first obscure, gather into distinct rills, which, with quickly swinging curves, carve out a model of a new drainage system. In the course of an hour of very rapid downfall, a bare, ploughed field, on a declivity of not more than five feet in the hundred, or less than the average slope of land, may have an average of one-third of an inch of its surface soil removed to the channels of the streams which drain it. It may, after such a time of rain, be noted on a field which has been ploughed and rolled that here and there a small flat stone or a potsherd lies on top of a little earthen column. We see at once that the natural roof has protected the earth beneath and caused it to be left behind in the process of erosion which has overtaken the soil of the neighbouring surface. A brief comparison of the effect of a heavy rainfall on a newly tilled surface bare of vegetation and on a like area which is protected by the natural covering of living and dead plants will show the peculiar influence of the vegetable shield on the history of soils. On wood and grasslands the rainfall has practically no erosive action whatsoever. In the forests the mat of decayed vegetation is in most cases able to take in three or four inches of water which it yields up so slowly as to distribute the flow over weeks, and in such a manner that it removes not a bit of the soil. 
On the meadows, the outgoing of water is more rapid. It may, indeed, pass to the permanent streams quite as rapidly as from the ploughed ground, but it is kept from contact with the soil by the closely set and entangled stems through which it cannot break, even when gathered into considerable streams. Unless field mice or moles have made burrows leading up and down the slopes and thereby providing a way in which the water is able to work below the grass, a rainfall of two inches an hour, a rate which may be called torrential, may be carried from a large field of well-grassed land having a slope of 12 feet in a hundred without notably eroding the soil. If I were an extreme selectionist, I should probably not hesitate to attribute to their own agency, as developed by survival of the fittest, the admirable system by which plants preserve the soil on which they depend from the rapid degradation to which it would be subjected but for this defence. The protective work which is here accomplished is indeed more perfect than elsewhere. It may be conceived that the plants have prospered in proportion to the efficiency of the shield which they afford to the soil on which their life depends. Interesting as is this question, it lies apart from our inquiry, and we must turn our attention to the further history of the rainwater. To be continued. End of section 2